Let us pray. Father God, once again, we are humbled by the opportunity to come together and fellowship around your word. Lord, we pray that we do not take it lightly, nor that we take it for granted. We've been granted this privilege, Lord, this blessing. It is being able to open your word, to hear your word read, to seek understanding according to your spirit. So we pray now, Lord, that we would give attention. Give attention to your words, Lord. We pray for the spirit to come, for your spirit to come and fill us. Renew our hearts and our minds and in ways that would grant to us understanding, illuminate our hearts, Lord. Change us according to your word, by your power, the same power that inspired the word that was just read. We pray for that power, that Holy Ghost power, to come and change the hearers. We pray for all of this, Lord. We, we thank you because we know that you are able to do this. And we pray that you would be willing, willing according to your sovereign, merciful providence, willing to bless us this morning. Pray it all according to Christ our Savior. Amen. The power of the kingdom of God. It's the power of forgiveness. It's the power of the kingdom. That's the power of Christianity. It's the power of forgiveness. The power of Christianity is not in the sword. Religions like Islam have often found success in coercion and forced conversions by threat of the sword. But when Christianity has engaged in such acts, and unfortunately those there have been some who have engaged in such acts in the name of Christianity, when, when they have done such things, it has been a detriment to the faith. It has been contrary to the commands of God and the faith that we profess because the power of Christianity is not the sword. The power of Christianity is forgiveness. And so the power of Christianity is not the sword. The power of Christianity is in the cross. If there's one word that I would submit to you this morning that sums up the power that is displayed on the cross of Christ, it is just that word. Forgiveness. John MacArthur, speaking of forgiveness, says, Nothing is more foreign to sinful human nature and nothing more characteristic of divine grace than forgiveness. You know, we live in a world that is a dog-eat-dog world, a world that get mine and hopefully you can get yours. We live in a world where the first law is a law of self-preservation, In a world such as that, forgiveness is not only foreign, beloved, forgiveness is seen as foolish. If you contemplate it, and rightly so, in October of 2006, a man, distraught and deranged man, walks into a Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with destruction and devastation and hatred on his mind. And he shoots 10 Amish schoolgirls. When the world hears of the news, the world is outraged. The world can't believe it. The world is heartbroken over this devastation, over this tragedy, shocked, as it were. And yet as shocked as many were in the world, some were even more shocked by the Amish's response. 
for the Amish community, rather than moving in bitterness, rather than operating out of hatred, rather than moving in vitriolic condemnation of this perpetrator, the Amish moved in otherworldly forgiveness out of a commitment to their Christian faith. The Amish move not in bitterness, but they move toward that man's family in forgiveness. Within three hours of the incident, the Amish men in that community were already seeking out his, his, his family. They were over at his wife's and her, her, his father and his children's home comforting them. Consoling them, reminding them that their children were not the only victims in this. But they knew they were too. Encouraging them not to move from the community. Because there they would find support, comfort, friendship, and forgiveness. Many in the world, when they heard of this, were just amazed. They were amazed, and they were moved in like fashion to seek out this type of forgiveness. But there were many in the world, beloved, who were shocked at the Amish's attitude. In fact, one newspaper columnist said this, said that the Amish, in acting in such a forgiving way, were ignoring reality. And said that the Amish inhabit a hopeless universe where senseless massacres are accepted. And not even the charming old-fashioned horse and buggy can make up for that. Some of them in the world indeed would have thought such forgiveness to be foolish. And yet the Bible reminds us that it is not that forgiveness that is foolish. But actually it's the world who is foolish. the world who is foolish because Paul reminds us that the cross, the crucible of the greatest crime in human history and the grandest demonstration of forgiveness, Paul says to the world, that is foolish. But to those who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. Because the power of the kingdom of God is the power of the cross. And nothing shouts from the cross as loud as does forgiveness. The power of the kingdom is the power of forgiveness. And the goal of preaching and teaching is the glory of God in the forgiveness of sinners through the person and work of Christ and Christ alone. That's the goal of preaching. That's the glory of God in preaching that we proclaim that sinners are forgiven in Christ and Christ alone. We come to our text this morning in Mark chapter 2. We see Jesus again. He's, He's manifesting the kingdom, is he not? Again, he has gone about preaching and teaching and therefore in manifesting the kingdom and showing the power of the kingdom and preaching and teaching the kingdom. Naturally, we should understand that he is preaching the power of forgiveness. We see it in our text. In these two accounts here of Jesus and healing the paralytic man and Jesus calling Levi. See, the power of forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness requires at least two things, beloved. And we see both of them in this text. Biblical forgiveness requires sin. And biblical forgiveness requires a Savior. And that's what we see. We see both of these in this text. We see the nature of sin. And then we see also the nature of our Savior. 
But before we get to the nature of sin and we see the nature of our Savior, let's look here at the nature of the setting that Jesus finds himself in. What is this setting? Well, apparently the Bible says that Jesus has returned home. Jesus has returned home. And so first thing, in the nature of the setting, you see the fascination of the people. They're fascinated because the word has gone out, as we saw in chapter 1. The word has gone out that Jesus, a mighty prophet from God, is doing miracles, and he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God, he's casting out demons, he's healing people. And the word has spread throughout all of the area. But now Jesus is back at home. He's back at home. And now it's all finally. Our Jesus is back at home. Let's go find out what he's been doing. And they crowd into the house. Standing room only. They're all over the floor. They're all around the walls. They're hanging out and into the windows. You can't get in the door because the line is all the way out in the street. Absolutely fascinated with Jesus. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And Jesus is in the midst of them. And what is he doing? He's preaching. He's preaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom. This is what he said he came to do. This is what it tells us in the first chapter that he said that he must do. And he is now proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. This is what he's teaching them. This is what he's preaching. Apparently, there was these friends, these men. And so you see the fascination, but now behold these friends. They've learned that Jesus is in town. And they have one of their friends is a paralytic. He's been paralyzed for quite some time. And they have heard that if we can just get to Jesus, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, something tells us the word is out that Jesus is able to heal. That Jesus is able to restore. But when they get to the house, they find that there is no way to get to Jesus. They've come late. They're at the back of the line. And there's no way that they're going to maneuver themselves and their friend on this stretcher to get to Jesus. Nobody's going to let them in. Because everybody's trying to get to Jesus. You can imagine the friend is probably saying, guys, you know, I really appreciate it. I know you guys are, you know, I see the love. I feel the love, you know, but it looks like it's not going to happen today. You know, I appreciate it. Thanks, you know, but we tried. Somebody comes up with, ah, I got another idea. I got another idea. Let's tear the roof off the house. Hey, imagine a paralytic say, okay, God, look. You know, okay, we, we've done what we could do, but uh, now you, you, you guys might be stretching it a bit to want to go on top of the roof. The friends determined to get their friend to Jesus at no matter the cost. Hoist the man up onto the roof of the house Jesus is preaching, and they open the roof up. And suddenly, they drop the man down in the midst of where Jesus is teaching. Who must Jesus be? Think about that. Who must Jesus be? That they would go through all of this trouble to get their friend to him. Who must this be? This says more about Jesus than it does say about the friends, beloved. Don't focus on the friends. This is saying a lot about who Jesus is. 
that they would go through all of this trouble, hoisting this man upon the roof, tearing open the roof, and dropping the man down rudely in the midst of the teaching rabbi. Must this be? It says more about Jesus than it says about them. You see, there's this great fascination. You see the friends. But then also, not only do you see the friends, but Jesus reminds us to take note of their faith. For the Bible says that when the man is let down through the roof, Jesus is impressed. He's impressed. And the Bible says that he takes note of their faith. Their faith. Their faith. Do you know what faith is? Faith is, faith is a conviction. Faith is a belief that leads to an action that garners a response. It's a belief. It's a conviction that leads to an action that garners a response. It's a conviction and a belief that leads to an action. It's not just a belief. It's a belief that leads to an action. For you notice, they don't just believe that Jesus will heal their friend. They're going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. Because they're not just going to sit outside and say, well, you know, we believe that Jesus can heal you and we're here. But since we can't get to him, oh, well. Faith is the conviction that leads to an action. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, if you believe that Jesus will do what Jesus says he will do, then you will do all that is necessary to appropriate that. That's what the friends do. You know, the Bible says that the demons believe in God and they tremble. The demons have faith that God exists. The demons believe that God is God and God can do what God can do. But the demons don't act upon it. Because faith is not just a conviction. Faith is a conviction that leads to an action. They believe that Jesus is able, and therefore they're going to do whatever they can to get their friend to Jesus. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Reminding us also that with faith, which is not just the convict, conviction, but also the action, it is that that pleases God. They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, these are the works of God. That you believe on him whom he has sent. What does that belief lead to? It leads to acting. It leads to repentance. It leads to following Christ. Here, these men and their faith is pleasing to Christ. Does it not also remind us that how we are to take others to Christ? And Christ is pleased when we do so. You understand that? That we are to take others to Christ. It reminds us of how we are to be praying for others. Do you know how often Jesus was pleased to perform a miracle on one party because another party brought them to Jesus? This is common in Jesus' ministry. You see this again and again. In Mark chapter 5 and verses 21 through 43, the father talks and asks Jesus to heal his daughter. You see it also. In Mark chapter 7, verse 24, where the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus on behalf of her daughter. You see it with the government official in John chapter 4 and verse 46 when he comes to Jesus on behalf of his servant. 
And you see it again with the government official in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5 when he comes on behalf of his son. And Jesus is pleased to perform the miracle not because of the faith of the daughter or the son or the servant, because of the faith and the prayers of the ones who came to him. How does not this remind us of the need to be all the time, always bringing others before Christ? To be praying for them. To be pleading with them, whether it's healing for their souls or healing for their bodies or healing for their relationships. It is us who have faith, who can bring those who don't have faith to Christ. And Christ may be pleased to respond, not because of them, but because of us, it reminds us the faith of these men causes them to act on behalf of their friends. And Jesus, on account of their faith, looks at the man and he says, my sons, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the man was brought to Jesus because he wanted to walk. And Jesus says, my son, you and I, we need to talk. We need to talk because the real issue here is not your body, it's your soul. For Jesus is not interested in this man gaining the whole world and losing his soul. He was not interested of that for the paralytic. He is not interested in that for you and I. What would it have profited him to have had his body healed, to have had his body restored, and to walk out of there from the presence of Jesus on the broad road to hell? It would have profited him nothing. And nobody knows this like Jesus does. So he looks at the man in passion and love and he says, my son, sins are forgiven. That's the nature of the scene and that leads us then to the nature of sin. Notice Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the amazement of all, but it should amaze us too. I mean, what is the issue here with sin? Nobody's talking about sin. The man is paralyzed. We dropped him down to be healed from this paralysis, Jesus, and you're talking about sin. What reminds us of the nature of sin, and the first thing is that sin is universal. Sin is universal for the paralyzed man really was no different than anyone else in that room. And this is what Jesus understood. Yes, he had a different ailment. He was paralyzed in his body, and perhaps no one else there was paralyzed, but everybody in there was paralyzed in soul. And from that standpoint, not a person in the place was any different from that paralyzed man. Not a person in here is any different. Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 3, does it not, that all have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says the main problem in a person's life is not his suffering. It's his sin. How true that is. We think it's our suffering. And that's why we pray so much about our suffering. This is why we get so consumed with our suffering. This is why the circumstances of our lives tend to dictate the nature of our lives. When the greatest problem of any person is not their suffering, the greatest issue that we have is our sin. 
And this is not to make light of suffering. This is not not to make light of pain. Jesus here is not making light of the man's paralysis. He is not making light of the man's pain. And nor does he make light of ours. But this is just to give perspective and realize that Jesus cares more about your eternal destiny than he does about your temporal circumstances. And he wants us to do the same. So first thing we're reminded here that sin is universal. The fact that Jesus says to this Man, your son, my, your sins are forgiven reminds us that that man who dropped there in front of Jesus was a sinner. And if he's a sinner, guess what? We all are. We all are. And not only do we see that sin is universal, we also see that sin is against God. Sin is against God. How do we know it's against God? Because of the reaction of the scribes who are standing there. Because of the reaction of the scribes who are standing there. Because they're wondering, wait a minute, what's going on here? What are you talking about? Only God can forgive sins. That's true, beloved. Because all sin is against God. And it is, it is the offended party who must forgive. And so we're reminded that the Bible reminds us that all sin is against God. Wherever sin is manifesting itself in your life or in the world, ultimately it is against God. David understood this when he sinned with, with Bathsheba and plotted to murder her husband and to cover up the scheme. In his repentance, in Psalm 51, verse 3, he says in his prayer, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, O God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Joseph understood this. Having to deal with the lustful advances of Potiphar's wife as he is serving Potiphar in Potiphar's home. And his his lustful wife tries to advance toward Joseph. And Joseph looks at her and he says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? That's the nature of sin. It's not only that it's universal, the nature of sin is that it is ultimately against God. It's God who you must seek out forgiveness for. Yes, 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 you. If you sin against me, you should come to me and confess your sins to me. But guess what? The confession of your sins to me is not going to make you clean. Ultimately, you have to get right with God. Because whoever you sin against in this world, ultimately, is a sin against God. It's not just the nature of sin. It's not just that it's universal. It's not just that it's against God. But then we see that it must be forgiven. It must be forgiven. Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's the only way to deal with them. If there was something else that Jesus could do with the man's sins, Jesus would do it. But there's nothing else to do with the sins. They have to be forgiven. They have to be. God will not acquit the guilty, the Bible says in Exodus. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, says in Nahum. Be not deceived, Paul says in Galatians. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, that also shall they reap. And Exodus 34 and verse 7 reminds us that God is not sweeping sins under the rug. 
but he is going to punish sins. And he will punish them to the third and the fourth generation if necessary. Sin that is universal and is against God must be forgiven. And as one writer says, the forgiveness of sin remains everywhere the exclusive right of God. That is God's prerogative. That is God's right. Because ultimately, it is all against him. And guess who understood this? Guess who understood this? The scribes. The scribes understood this. But when Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven, the scribes are incredulous. And they ask a very fair and appropriate question. They says, who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, all right, all right, Jesus. Now you have just stepped beyond the bounds of the prophet. Now you have stepped over in the territory of blasphemy. Now you have stepped over into the territory of the divine. You have no right. You have no authority to be forgiven people of their sins. Right here, right now, no temple, no sacrifice, no bull, no lamb, no goat, no cleansing, no ritual. You right now, out of your mouth, can just say, this man is forgiven. Blasphemy. Jesus, Jesus says to them, not only do I have the authority, I'm going to show you that I have the ability because I am the son of God. Here is the message that Jesus is bringing to them when he says, which is easier? Which is easier? Which is easier for me to say uh, son, your sins are forgiven, or for me to say, take up your bed and walk. Does it not put you in mind of Genesis chapter 18? The Bible says, is there anything too hard for God? Which is easier? Does it not remind us what Jesus says, that there's nothing impossible with God? Which is easier? Jesus says, for me, these are the same because the, the reason I'm able to do these is because of the body and the blood that I have come to give of my life. I am the sacrifice that's going to forgive him of his sin. My power is going to make him walk. For me, they're both the same. I'll show you that I have authority by demonstrating my power. And he says, not only is he forgiven, but now, get up. I'm not only going to restore his soul, but for your sake, I'm going to restore his body. Rise up. Beloved, it's an amazing thing that Jesus here is demonstrating the power of the kingdom and the forgiveness of sin. And in the midst of them, he shows them that he indeed is the son of God, very God of very God. We not only see here the nature of sin, but we also see the nature of the Savior. But before we see the nature of the Savior, I want to take a little excursion and see the nature of the kingdom once again in the call of Levi. After, after all that, the people are amazed. The people are fascinated. The people are, are just dumbfounded that Jesus is able to not only forgive sins, but now he's able to tell a paralytic to get up and walk. And by some amazement or something that Jesus is able to somehow get out of that house. 
Can you imagine? What's the word got around that he's healing paralysis? More and more people would have come. And by some amazing occurrence, Jesus and his disciples are somehow, over the next day or two, able to get out of the house. And they're making their way out from Capernaum. And they're moving over into another region. But before they come to that region, they must pass by a toll booth. There's a toll booth. You know, they call them tax booths back then, but we know they're toll booths. I remember the first time I went to a toll booth. I was driving, never seen. I grew up in rural Michigan. We had no toll booths. First time I got to a city where they were paying toll booths, I was like, you got to be kidding. I have to give you money to ride on the road? that are already paid for by the taxes that I have to pay? So not only do I have to buy the gas, not only do I have to pay the state taxes, not only do I have to pay the county taxes, now I got to come through this poll and and pay another tax? Never mind you, it was only a quarter or something like that. Alan... Alan Bino just came back from New York, and he told me that there was a toll booth that he went through that was $20. $20! One way. No way. I'm turning around. No way. $20. Here's Jesus, this is, this is saying, this is, this is simply the same thing. In order to get from Capernaum into the next region, there are these booths that are set up. And these men are sitting there, and they are tax booths. And you have to pay the tax. This is the Roman government's way of raising funds. You have to pay the tax in order to get through. And Jesus comes upon this tax booth, and there is Levi. Also known to us as Matthew. Levi, sitting there at the toll booth, a tax collector. Here's the thing to know. Nobody liked the tax collector. They were awful men. They were awful men because they were crooks. The whole lot of them. The way that you made money as a tax collector is that Rome would tell you how much the the tax would be, the poll tax would be for people to pass through. And then after that, anything you collected above that belonged to you. So if the tax was $20, you drive up to the the poll and he's like, $30. 20 goes to Rome, 10 goes in his pocket. You had no choice. You had no choice. They hated the tax collector. Not only did they hate him, they refused them in the synagogue. They, they were not welcomed in the worship. They were Jews. And they were fleecing their own people for the sake of getting rich. And tax collectors were welcomed. They were not welcomed in the synagogue. They were not welcomed at Jewish feasts and festivals. To touch a tax collector, many people determined that you were unclean. The Jews understood that it was against the commands of God to lie, with one exception. You could lie to a tax collector. And this is Levi. This is Levi. That's why the Bible says that Jesus is with tax collectors and sinners, because even among the sinners, the tax collectors were a different breed. And Jesus comes, and there is Levi sitting at the booth. And he says to Levi, he gives them that kingdom call. And he says, you, follow me. You, follow me. And notice his response. The Bible says he rose and he followed him. He rose and he followed him. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, it expands upon that where it says he left everything. He left everything right there. Follow Jesus. 
Isn't this the same call that we saw that happened in chapter 1 with, with Peter and Andrew and James and John? Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. Peter and Andrew dropped their nets. They left their vocation. He comes to James and John a little while later and he says, follow me. And they dropped their nets and they left their family and their friends. Here comes the Levi. And he says again, follow me. And Levi, where does he leave? He drops his sin. Drops it. Done with it. He follows Christ. Levi not only heard with his ears, but he heard with his heart. He heard with his heart. It's one thing to hear the voice of Christ with your ears. It's another thing to hear with your heart. How do you know that he didn't just hear with his ears, but he heard with the ears of his heart? It's because his response was that he dropped everything and he followed after Christ. No questions. No questions asked. How do you know when people only hear with their ears? Are they full of questions? Where are we going, Jesus? Why? Where? When? How? Give me a minute. You going to the mall? I'll go. (laughs) Going to the big house on the hill? Jesus, I'll go. You going to the fancy club and comfortable living? Jesus, I'll go there. But before I go, I want to know where you're going. We got questions, don't we? Hear the call of Christ, and all we do is ask questions. Why? When? Where? When? How? Who? It's because you haven't heard with your heart. Because when you hear the call of Christ on the heart, it says, where you lead me, I follow. And where does Jesus lead you to? He says, come with me into the community of the saints. You come. Come with me into the waters of baptism. You come. Come with me to the communion table. You come. Come with me to self-sacrifice. You come. Come with me to giving up the pursuits of this world. Come with me to the cross. Come with me outside the camp. Come with me to the unknown and the unreached. Come with me there. Those who hear with their hearts and not just with their ears, they're willing to drop everything and follow him. This is Levi. Jesus reminds us, people, that most of us make Jesus secondary or even tertiary, or even worse, the pseudo-gospel. And Jesus, when he calls his disciples, he calls them and tells them that he is to be primary. Primary. That's why he says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Because the call upon the disciple is to follow Christ. Not to beg questions. It's to follow him. Matthew, Levi, gets up. And he follows. And he follows. This leads us to the nature of our Savior. Who is this Christ that we worship? This, this passage points us to Jesus as our Savior, and it reminds us, it gives us two important portraits here. And the first one is that our Savior is a preacher. That's what he does. See that twice, twice, twice in this text, twice in these verses. When he's up there with the paralytic, the Bible says, what is Jesus doing in the midst of the house there? What is he doing? He's preaching. He's preaching. 
And then it says, as he is going along and he comes to the table where Matthew is doing, Matthew is, what is Jesus doing as they're walking along? What is he doing? The Bible says he's teaching. Because that is what Jesus did. Everywhere our Lord went, he went preaching. He taught faith in him. He taught repentance from sin. He taught the kingdom of God everywhere and always. It was a proclamation of the kingdom. Believe the gospel. Repent of sin. Reminds us that the calling of sinners to repentance is not the exception to the gospel, beloved. It is the rule. kingdom of God, which is manifested in the forgiveness of sinners, is My patience. Why eat with sinners? Why does Jesus eat with sinners? Well, you know, there's really a simple answer to this question. Because if Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he wouldn't have anybody to eat with. (laughs) Unless he was eating alone, he always ate with sinners, beloved. And isn't it a rejoice to our, isn't it a a comfort to our hearts and a source of rejoicing that Jesus still delights to sup with sinners? Every Sunday morning, we come to the Lord's table. It is Christ the Holy One rejoicing. Christ did not eat with sinners, beloved. He would not have anyone to eat with. In a paralytic, he was sick. But so too was Levi. And so too were all of us. And Jesus reminds them, and I'm a doctor. I'm a physician. Now you be weary of any doctor who has no patience. You go into a doctor's office and there are no patients. You go in the back and there are nobody in the rooms. You look around and there's look like there's nobody on the appointment roll. Here's some good advice. You get out of there as soon as possible. Jesus reminds us that he is a physician who has come to see his And he delights to see his patience because he has so many patients. You understand that? As the physician, he's always on call. His office hours are 24-7. There's always room for one more. His appointment log is never blocked up so that you can't get through. Everyone who comes, comes to the front of the line. And you come to see him. And you know that he is a physician. For those who perceive themselves well, he comes. For those who know. That they are sick. You know that's all Jesus asks? That's all he ever asks? 
He's a doctor. He is a physician. And the only thing that he ever asks is that you understand that you are sick. That's all. That you understand that you're in need of healing. That's all. That you understand that your soul is sick. That's all. That you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's all. That's why he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for the sick. I came for the weary. I came for the wounded. I came for the sad. I came for those who need healing. All he has. Is that you understand your need of a Savior. The song says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. That's all. That's all. Do you feel your need of a Savior? This morning. If you do, the doctor is in and he says, Come, come and find healing, restoration for your soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. That he delights to to call weary and wounded and sad and helpless sinners to come and sup with him. That he might apply the healing balm of his grace and mercy to our souls. Lord, we are unworthy. We are bowed down. Sinners needing a savior. We thank you for Christ this morning who saves and heals our souls. Be with us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.